All right, we are just starting a mini-series, a shorter series that was on my heart to do. I'll, I'll, not, I'll not finish it before I leave for Kenya. Uh, and when I get back, Lord willing, I'll pick up and, and finish it out. Um, it is in connection, I think my heart was moving this direction in connection to our recent anniversary that we just passed as a church some 35 years now. Uh, that we've existed as a church. And then uh, I had shared at the end of the message I gave that Sunday morning, I had shared a brief evaluation of the church in terms of my perspective, looking at the last 35 years. And uh, after that, I, my, my mind just kept coming back to that theme. And I, I think that that led to uh, what's on my heart here. And what we're doing is we're looking at, last Sunday we looked at uh, Revelation chapter 1 and specifically the first of the great visions, the sequence of visions that are in the book of Revelation. It's a vision of the Lord Jesus himself as, as he revealed himself to John the Apostle. And the way that he revealed himself was, of course, uh, you know, a lot of the attention was on what he actually looked like, what the Lord looks like in his, in his resurrected and ascended glory. But the circumstance in which he chose to reveal himself to John was an interesting one to me that I emphasized last week, which was that he was seen by John in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And I spent some time developing the Old Testament significance of that, which was, I, I believe, purposeful on the Lord's part in choosing to make himself known to John in that setting because the setting was familiar to all of the faithful Jewish people throughout the entire Old Testament time period. Uh, It's the setting of the high priest serving the Lord in the temple of God in Jerusalem in the midst of the golden lampstands that would be the light source for the temple. And I emphasize the the responsibilities for the high priest, not the yearly responsibility on the Day of Atonement, but the, the... daily responsibility, which was to, in a sense, maintain, to dress, as uh, our translation described, to maintain the lampstands. And what it was involved in that was essentially two responsibilities. There's seven lamps on each one of the seven st- stems of the lampstand, and those lamps were to be removed. They were to be filled with oil and to make sure they had a sufficient amount of oil to burn for the entire day. And then the wicks that were in those lamps were to be trimmed, uh, cutting away the, the burned out material, so to speak, so that uh, the lamps would burn as brightly as they were intended to burn. And then the lamps would be placed back in their position and situated so as to shine light on the space in front of them. And so uh, I believe that the Lord in this vision showing John that he was in the midst of seven golden lampstands as an emphasis on his great role as our heavenly high priest. And that uh, at the end, in fact, let's, I said turn to Revelation 2, but let's just look at the very last verse again of chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 20. And this is again the Lord Jesus speaking to John. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so the Lord showed John seven lampstands. He showed himself in the midst of those seven lampstands and then he had him earlier in chapter one send this letter once it was written, once it was completed to send the letter to these seven churches. And they happened to be the seven churches that were nearest in physical geography to where John was incarcerated on the island of Patmos for the testimony of the gospel. He had been imprisoned there by the Roman authorities. And so the lampstands correspond to the churches. Now we're moving into the body of those seven letters. Following chapters 2 and 3, the rest of the book of Revelation is the other visions and the, the, the things that the Lord wants to reveal in a, in a greater and wider perspective to John. But in chapters 2 and 3, we have the record of these seven short, compact letters. The first one, which we'll be studying today, is just seven verses long. So compared to any of the other New Testament letters, even the short ones, 
uh, this is an exceptionally short and compact letter. That doesn't mean, though, that there's not lots of stuff here for us to unpack and for us to understand and then hopefully for us to apply. Because the, the most important element for each one of these seven letters, and we identified that there's a patterning for all seven. I'll go through the pattern here in just a moment. But the most important is the very last line given to each one of these churches to e- in each one of these letters. And uh, let's uh, reread that from uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, the end of this letter to the Ephesian church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then that line is repeated identically to all of the seven churches. The idea being that the Lord is going to speak differently to each one of the seven churches, but what he says to each church is meant to be instructive to all of the churches. So he's, he's addressing the church in Ephesus by addressing their current spiritual condition, the specific circumstances that are going on in that specific church, but then he's broadening the application to all of the churches, and not just all of the seven that were in existence then, but all of the churches in the face of the earth at that time in history, and then by his, of course, inspired purpose for his word, he applies those same principles and concerns to all of the true churches that know the Lord, that follow the Lord, that serve the Lord from that point forward through all of church history, including us today. So we're going to be looking at all seven churches. We won't find identical connections to us in each one of these seven letters, but we will see points of application from everything that he says to these churches that are meant to be instructive to us. Now, I had mentioned at the end of the study last week that we'll probably do a fairly short approach to each one of these letters. So my intention is for most of the seven to just do one single study for each letter. For at least two of them, I want to split it up and do a couple of studies per per letter to the church. And I want to do that for today. So I'm going to read all seven verses of the uh, letter to the church in Ephesus, and we're going to only uh, cover one half of what the Lord has to say to them for our study today. So let's start in verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, just as a reminder then of the pattern that will apply to all of these seven letters, uh, what the Lord does in each letter is he identifies himself, meaning he, he reintroduces himself to the church. All seven of these churches are true churches at this point in history as they're receiving the letter. They all belong to the Lord. They've all been established by the Lord. He owns them as his churches. But though they know the Lord, he reintroduces himself to them and reintroduces himself slightly differently in each one of the seven letters. So we're going to pay attention to why does the Lord introduce himself in this way to this church in this particular letter. Second, the Lord identifies for each of the the letters, each of the churches, what it is that's going on in the church that's pleasing to him. We've seen that the letters are, these seven are letters of evaluation where the Lord is coming in order to fill the lamps and to trim the wicks. 
He's coming to encourage certain things and to discourage certain things. And so we want to pay attention to what is it that the Lord finds pleasing in his sight in those churches. Uh, The third thing is we're going to identify what's, of course, on the opposite side of that equation, what displeases the Lord in the church. Um, There won't be in all seven letters something displeasing to the Lord in all seven churches, but in in this first one, we've already read, there's a big one. There's only one issue that he has with the church, but it's a big issue, and we want to pay attention to what it is that the Lord is concerned about and is so displeasing to him that even threatens the church with losing their status as a true church of the Lord unless that changes among them. Uh, The the, uh, fifth thing, or the fourth thing is, the Lord gives a a final promise of hope. In this particular letter, it's the very last line at the end of verse 7. The one to the Ephesians, which we'll focus more on next week, is, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, We're going to develop that a little bit because it it has to do with, of course, a a biblical image going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But it was also connected to something that was was famous and was going on in the city of the Ephesians. Uh, But we'll we'll develop that next time. And then finally, the Lord gives the same final exhortation to all of the churches. That is, let everyone who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying. So our starting point is the Spirit of God is speaking through these seven letters. He's speaking to those specific churches, but he's really speaking to all churches. Uh, I'm going to join Jay in his emphasis in prayer this morning and, and just lean on the Lord that, that my heart, as I go through this, even though I know all of this material, as I'm going through it with you, I want to hear freshly, clearly what the Spirit may be saying to us, and I want you to hear as clearly as I do. I don't want to miss anything that the Lord may be speaking to us through these seven letters. All right, with that, let's launch in. Uh, In uh, verse 1, we have an issue that we have to tackle that's going to apply to all seven letters, but I'll spend time on it today and in in the succeeding studies that we're going to be doing. I'll just assume that you remember what I emphasized from this one. Uh, Who is the letter technically and actually written to? It's interesting, the letters are not written directly to the churches. Even though they're letters sent to the churches, and no question as they arrive, someone in the church is going to stand up on Sunday morning when they have their worship gathering like we do this morning, and someone is going to read, publicly read the letter out loud to the entire church. But the letter is not addressed directly to the church. It's addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And then look at verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And then look down in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and so on for each one of the seven churches. So the letter is written to the angel of the church. I would imagine, therefore, it's pretty important for us to understand exactly who this angel is and we immediately encounter an interpretive problem. Um, If you've ever read any Bible studies or any teachings or any commentaries connected to the book of Revelation, one of the first things you're going to encounter is there's lots of differences of opinion about the book of Revelation in the wider Christian community. Lots of different interpretive frameworks that are applied to understanding what exactly is the Lord revealing to John and then through John to all of us. And while this is one of the smaller issues in relationship to some of the later visions and understanding exactly what those are saying, uh, this is a real issue for us to understand. Who are the angels of the seven churches? So there are three main interpretations that, uh, I don't, you know, I've got probably, I probably got 20 to 30 excellent commentaries on the book of Revelation in my library, and I've read others besides those 20 or 30 that are available online, and um, even out of the 20 good ones that I have and and that I like and that I I respect, uh, there's, I I see all three of these viewpoints that I'm about to lay out for you um, represented. Uh, I'm going to just describe the three I have an issue with the first one. I just don't think it's right. I don't think it's a possible interpretation. And then number two and number three interpretation, 
I think they're both excellent. And for me, it's a, and I, I, I'm rarely like this when it comes to interpreting a passage from God's word, but it's kind of like a flip a coin. I really don't know between number two and number three what the actual intention of the Lord is. So I'm just going to share these three with you. The first idea is the angel of the church is kind of like the spirit of the church. What's meant by that is kind of like the idea that every church has its own unique spiritual personality. How many of you have ever visited more than just this church at some time in your life? Okay, so there's a few that you know, were born and raised in this church, and maybe this has been your only real church experience, but, and, and praise God if that's the case. But um, many of us have experienced going to other churches. Were the other churches that you've ever visited, were they identical to this one? Like you walked in, you just say, I could not tell the difference between that church and this church. And it's exactly the same. The worship is exactly the same. Uh, the communion format is exactly the same. The, the teaching is exactly the same. The fellowship is exactly the same. I, it's all different. Churches are, are widely different. So uh, this first interpretation, uh, Bible scholars are taking it and saying, okay, it's kind of describing the, 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 person, the spiritual personality of each of the churches. And the, the angel is just a symbol. The idea of an angel is just a symbol for that. Well, I have a problem with that interpretation, even though I, I have a few really good commentaries that go that direction with their interpretation. To me, the whole idea is going back to verse 20 uh, of chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, when the Lord first revealed himself to John, John saw these seven stars in the right hand of the high priest. And then uh, in verse 1 of chapter 2, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. What would be the point of revealing himself to the churches and specifically to the Ephesian churches, the one who holds the seven personalities of the church in his right hand? It doesn't even make sense to me. It's almost like saying, yeah, you're different than this church, but you know, that's, I hold that in my hand. Holding in the hand is, is the idea of, of control, governance, power over. Uh, it, it would almost be indicating that the Lord has chosen for each church to have such a radically different personality. And while I don't think, and I do not believe, that the Lord wants all of his churches to be cookie cutter identical to each other, we're not meant to just be uh, clones of each other. There are meant to be distinctions among churches, just like there are distinctions among individuals. But I don't think that's the point of what the Lord is communicating here. So what are the other two options? And, and these two, I'm fine with whichever one you think out of these two is the better option. I, I just don't know with certainty. The second one is, each, the idea is each church is assigned their own guardian angel. An actual angel from heaven that it is assigned by the Lord from heaven to kind of watch over the circumstances of that church, to guard it, to protect it, to serve the Lord's purpose for that church. I think there's a lot to be said about this option because look all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He, that's the Lord Jesus, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So John's book that we call the book of Revelation is a sequence of visions, visionary experiences that John has. And how does he have those visionary experiences? The Lord sends an angel to kind of uh, to kind of be his spiritual tour guide through the experiences that he's about to have. So there's, right from the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's a clear emphasis on the presence and the activity of angelic messengers sent from the throne of God for the benefit and the purpose of informing his people through this set of visionary experiences that he has. So it would not be shocking to me that the Lord has therefore also appointed an angel over every church. I think we're all comfortable with the idea from a passage that, that's in the book of Matthew about the idea that individual believers 
have an angel that guards them, that watches over them, that is assigned by the Lord. And if we're comfortable with that, most certainly we would be comfortable with the idea of the Lord providing an angel for each church, which is a corporate body of his people. Now, the third option is the idea that, and this is probably the most popular one among the commentators. I just was counting up the number that held to one of the three views over the other, is the idea that the angel here is simply a uh, symbolic reference to the human leadership or the human church government that rules over the church in a spiritual sense of representing the Lord's authority and that speaks to the church on behalf of the Lord. Uh, This view uh, looks at the actual word angel that we have in our English translation, which translates a, a Greek word, agalos. And agalos can refer to an angel from heaven, but it can also be used and is used in the New Testament to describe human messengers. Let's look back at one example of this in Matthew chapter 11. And this is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples about John the Baptist. I'll read Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, um, in this um, in this passage, what? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I should have started reading verse ten. I knew I was missing something here. Uh, my apologies. Look back up in verse ten. Here, uh, the Lord Jesus is again still speaking about John, and he is um, quoting from uh, the Old Testament prophet. And he says this: This is he of whom it is written, "Behold, I send my messenger before your face." who will prepare your way before you. And then verse 11, we know in the connection that Jesus is talking about John. So the word in verse 10, I send my messenger, in the original text is the same Greek word that's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as angel. Behold, I send my angel before your face. But he's speaking about a human angel in this case. Because an angel is essentially... And the the Greek word that's connected to their name, angel, is just a word which means a messenger. So angels are messengers of God because they they carry God's messages from his throne to, to people on earth. And in this case, John the Baptist, though he was technically what we normally call a prophet, he was also the angel of the Lord in the sense that he was carrying a God-ordained divine message in his prophecy and in the purpose of the Lord for him to introduce the Lord Jesus to Israel. So I send my angel before your face. So these interpreters that hold to this third view uh, really view it as when he when he's saying, when the Lord is saying in chapter 2, verse 1 of, of uh, Revelation, um, in fact, let's head back over to Revelation at this point. When he says to the angel of the church, what he means, according to this viewpoint, is to the, and I'm going to use modern uh, traditional terminology, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, meaning that the letter is written to the leadership of the church who is then intended by the Lord to pass that message on to the rest of the church. So again, I don't know with certainty which of the the last two views, it's either an actual angel or it's a human messenger functioning in the role of a messenger of God. Um, But one way or the other, uh, I don't think you can really go wrong with either viewpoint. All right, so the next thing we want to pay attention to is how does the Lord choose to introduce himself to the Ephesians uh, in this particular letter? Remember, each introduction is unique to that church. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is the Lord's introduction to the church. He wants them to know him, one, as the one who holds the stars, 
whether guardian angels or whether church government, what is the emphasis on holding the stars? Again, to hold in the right hand is you have power, you have control, you have authority, you have strong influence over what is in your right hand, the right hand being the the biblical hand of strength. And so in that circumstance, what the Lord is showing is whether it's the angels that watch over the churches, I'm in charge of them, I'm in control of them. That means I'm in control of your safety and your security as a church. Or if it's church government, then the idea is the Lord is emphasizing that he's in charge of the leadership of the church and that the church can be confident because of the Lord's involvement at that level in how they are being governed. The second emphasis is the Lord reveals himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So in the, in the prior vision in chapter one, when John first saw Jesus, uh, let's go back to um, verse 12 of chapter one. This is how he first saw him. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. We're not told what he's doing there, um, but the implication of his first sight of the Lord Jesus in the midst of the lampstands is he's standing in a certain position in the midst of the lampstands. I've always pictured, it might not be exactly this way, but I've always pictured kind of like right in the center, surrounded by, in a circle, the seven lampstands, showing that he has a... He has a um, identical relationship to all seven churches. But here in verse 1 of chapter 2, he's now in a different relationship to the lampstands than he was in chapter 1. Now the Lord who has been revealed as the high priest maintaining the lampstands is seen as walking among the seven golden lampstands. Now if he's walking among them, now the relationship which in chapter 1 was emphasizing I have the same relationship to all seven, now the emphasis shifts slightly in an important way to indicate what? If, I'm, if I lined up seven people in a circle here this morning and I stood right in the midst of the seven and then I began to walk among the seven people, what would, what would I be emphasizing differently? I'd be emphasizing that at a certain point I'm in closer relationship to one than I am to another. I have, I have a, a, a kind of a face-to-face connection with one when I draw close to that one and then when I leave that one and move to another, that, that emphasis of, of closer connection shifts as I'm moving among the seven lampstands. I think this line in verse uh, one of chapter two is the line that, that indicates to me this principle of evaluation of the churches most strongly. It's, it's like the Lord first visits the Ephesians church and then leaving there, he goes on to the church in Smyrna. From there, goes on to the church in Pergamum and on for all of the seven churches. And as he's visiting each one of the seven churches, the indication is he'll come back to the Ephesian church. In fact, in the, um, the wording later on in this letter, look at verse five again of Ephesians two. This is where he's addressing his big concern about the church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And then this line, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When the Lord says, I will come to you, that indicates he's not constantly there in the same way that he will be when he comes. So he comes for a visit, then he leaves and goes to another church for a visit, and then he eventually works his way around the circle until he's back to where he started and revisits the church. But in the second visit, now he's going to be interacting differently with them than he did in the first visit. In the first visit, he was filling and trimming. In the second visit, if they haven't responded well to his first visit, then there's going to be consequences, heavenly consequences for their lack of responsiveness to his ministrations to them in his first visit. 
So I look at it like this. The Lord periodically visits true churches. So we can say the presence of the Lord in relationship to a true church is experienced in two different ways, and they're both true. One is not one way of experiencing the presence of the Lord is not arguing against another way. In one sense, biblically speaking, and we'd be absolutely on target to say it this way, the Lord is always present with the true church. So when we come together on Sunday mornings, when we come together on Thursday night, or when we come together later today at the Spajari home for our fellowship time, wherever the church is gathered, as long as they're true believers and it's a true church that the Lord identifies as a church, then the Lord is present with his people. But in this sense of what he's speaking to the Ephesians about, he is not constantly present in what we would call an evaluation visit. An evaluation visit is when the Lord comes and says, okay, now I'm taking stock of what's going on among you and what has been going on among you. And I'm also taking stock of what should have been going on among you but hasn't been. And now I'm going to address that with you. I'm going to call your attention to it. And I want to see some strengthening of what's pleasing to me. And I want to see some weakening of what displeases me. I want to see some change. I want to see some difference the next time I come for this evaluation visit. Now, I cannot tell you in a prophetic sense that the Lord is right now visiting and evaluating tree of life in that second greater sense of the Lord's presence. All I can do is say, this is what was on my mind and heart as we passed our 35th year. And my, my mind kept coming back to these first three chapters of the book of Revelation leading to me teaching this series. So the Lord may or may not be evaluating in that sense because I don't speak for him in that way, but I want us to be aware that whether it's happening right this minute or not, it, if we're a true church, if we belong to the Lord, such visits do happen and it's important when they do that we pay attention to what the Lord's calling our attention to. And of course, he'll call our attention not just through some some you know imagination that we might be having he'll call our attention to those things through his revealed word all right so now what are we going to focus on for the rest of our study today i want to just look at there's two things that he addresses with the church and those two things are things that he's pleased with and things that he's displeased with i want to save for next sunday lord willing the thing that he was displeased with in the church, which was they had left their first love. I want to focus on that next Sunday. But for this week, I just want to focus on what's pleasing to him. So let's read those verses that speak to that issue. Starting in verse two, I'm going to read um, verse two and verse three, and then I'm going to uh, skip down and add in, because this is also pleasing to him, verse six. So 2, 3, and 6. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you were enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Skipping down now to verse 6. Yet this you have, and he's saying, you have this, this is a good thing that you have this. This you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so what I believe he is saying to the churches through this portion of the Ephesians letter is, the Lord is pleased with one thing in a true church. It's not the only thing he's pleased with. We're going to see in the other letters There are other things that please him, but the Lord is pleased with his church, those that belong to him, being a discerning church. It's one of the most important elements and aspects of a healthy, true church of the Lord. You know, out of all of the things that we could list in terms of when people who happen to be, for whatever reason, in between churches and they're looking for a place to go, and call home as a, as a church. And we could make out a list of all of the things that people consider and take into account when they're deciding, where am I going to go to church? Where am I going to connect 
Where am I going to commit? Where am I going to call my spiritual home? Uh, you know, what church am I going to call my spiritual home? Um, there are all kinds of things that matter to people. Um, I'll just n- name a few right off the top of my head. Um, you know, what, what are the facilities like? Right? Does that matter to people in our culture, in our society? Yeah. What are the facilities like? You know, is it, is it nice? Is there adequate parking? Or is the parking close enough to the building so that I don't have to travel too far from my car to the building? Um, does the air conditioning work in the summer? Um, things things that, that matter to us, right? Um, what about the worship? Is it my style of music? Do I really like the way they do the, the worship songs? Um, do they do they do the kind of message that I like? You know, some people like what we do, a more in-depth, meaty kind of Bible study. Some people don't like that. Some people would prefer to have, you know, kind of like a, you know, just give me 20 minutes of something to help me, practically speaking, for my week immediately ahead of me, encourage me, build me up, make me feel better about my relationship with the Lord, and, you know, don't go past that 20-minute mark or I'm going to fall asleep. Um, so there are all kinds of things. What kind of programs does the church have? How, you know, do they have, uh, do they have a great children's ministry? Uh, you know, there's just, I, I could just go on and on in terms of the things that are evaluated when considering a church. What's interesting to me, this is true in this letter to the Ephesians, but it's also true to the other, for the other six as well. Not a single thing that I just mentioned off the top of my head is a consideration of the Lord in his evaluation of his churches. It doesn't mean that those things don't matter to us. They just don't matter to him. It's not important to him. It's not a priority to him. But there are some things that are a priority, and so much so that he carves out special focus and puts his spotlight right on that thing to make sure they don't miss how important it is to him. And the one thing that he was pleased with as he looked at the Ephesian church, though there was something big that displeased him, there was something that greatly pleased him, and that was they were what I'm calling a discerning church. But it starts this way in verse 2. And he uses this line twice at the beginning of verse 2, and then he repeats it again at the beginning of verse 3. The the phrase is, I know. And it's meant to be an encouraging phrase. It's meant to be a comforting phrase. As the Lord looks at his church, the most important thing that we can consider is he knows what's going on. He knows the true story of what's happening in each of the churches. None of us are are beyond his observation and none of us are, on the other hand, fooling him. He knows exactly what's going on with the churches. And this is what he saw in the Ephesian church. I know your works, your toil. The word toil here means to to work yourself to the point of exhaustion in spite of troubling surrounding circumstances. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. And then look down in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently, which he mentioned in verse 2, so he repeats himself. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So what, what was the troubling circumstance in the city of Ephesus that the Ephesians were commended by the Lord for remaining hard workers, exhaustive workers, and enduring patiently the trouble in the surrounding circumstances that they were dealing with. Uh, I don't have time to read it today, but if, you, if, if you're interested, you can go back, and we'll eventually get here, Lord willing, in our Acts study, but it's going to be a long time before we get there. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, there's, there's the backstory of how the Ephesians church first got started. And the, the gospel first came to the city of Ephesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but as he was there and, and proclaiming the gospel and people were starting to, to respond and, and get saved and the, the city was being affected and influenced by this, this new message that was transforming the hearts and lives of some of the citizens of Ephesus, uh, there, was a, there was an immediate strong reaction to what was happening. And the strong reaction started 
with one man who was a silversmith. And he, ha- he was part of a guild, a craftsman guild of silversmiths. And they were very wealthy because Ephesus was known for one thing. Each one of these cities, by the way, that we'll be studying is known for something. Each city having its own special characteristic. And what set Ephesus apart from all of the other cities of the Roman Empire, it was the host to the temple of Artemis, who was a Greek goddess. She's also known in the Roman, because uh, the Romans basically just uh, stole the Greek gods and renamed them with Roman names. She was known as Diana uh, to the Romans, but Artemis to the Greeks. And she was the goddess of the hunt. So her, her, her surrounding area that, that she's normally pictured in was she was out in the middle of the forest hunting, but she was also the goddess of fertility. And um, they had built, the Ephesians had built this gigantic and ornate and gorgeous temple dedicated to Artemis. And the uh, silver craftsmen in the city of Ephesus, some of the finest silversmiths in the Roman Empire, uh, they made their entire living making little, uh, little Artemis figurines and little altars to Artemis that they would then sell to the individual worshipers that would come and worship in the temple. And they would sell them, you know, because they were, they were fine craftsmen and they were pure silver. They would sell them at a high price. And this guild was a, an enormously rich guild as a result. So um, in Acts 19, what happens is this silversmith sees these people turning from the worship of Artemis to the worship of the Lord Jesus and they're getting saved and their lives are changing and the, the population of the temple is diminishing as the population of the church is growing. And he stirs up a riot in the city that goes on for an enti- almost an entire day and, and kind of involves the whole city. And they're rioting because of the gospel stirring up this problem for the economic base of this silversmith guild in the city. So that was just one day's trouble. But the idea is from that point forward, there is this ongoing battle now, a spiritual warfare between the, the false worship of Artemis and the true worship of the Lord Jesus. And the gospel as it's moving out in the city is always one that is characterized by patient endurance of the opposition the spiritual opposition that the gospel is encountering and the people sharing the gospel are encountering. So the Lord wants to encourage their hearts. I know that you're, you're true to the gospel, is essentially what he's saying. In spite of all of the cultural opposition around you, everyone else in the city may hate your guts, but you've been patiently enduring all of the opposition that you've encountered and you have remained faithful to me in the work of the gospel. That's the work that they have been doing. And then he adds this, and this is where the discernment comes in. Verse two, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. All right, is... is the Lord talking about, in, t- in terms of these that are calling themselves apostles, is he talking about people that are inside the church or outside the church? He's talking about people that are inside the church. And when he is characterizing them as those who are evil, is he talking about those who are inside the church or outside the church? Inside the church. And when he says that these men have called themselves apostles and are not from the Lord's evaluation. So these men have, have identified themselves publicly in front of the church as apostles of the Lord, but they're not actually apostles of the Lord because we know that because the Lord himself says they are not apostles and the church has found them to be false. Is that process of these men identifying themselves falsely and then the church evaluating that putting that to the test and then drawing a conclusion and, and rendering judgment, is that a process that's happening outside the church or inside the church? All of this is going on inside the church. Now, 
that's kind of like what I would call the spiritual wild west. I mean, can you imagine being in a church where this is actually happening? Thankfully, we haven't had to deal with something like this. But some churches, true churches, Ephesus was a true church of the Lord, was having to deal with this. So there's really two levels of things that are going on here, and I want to address both of them. First, let's look back in the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, this is a different church. Paul the Apostle is writing this, and he's writing it to the Corinthian church. But I want you to see that this isn't an issue that was limited only to the Ephesian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll start reading in verse 3. And I just want you to imagine. Imagine if this was going on in this church. Because we're not immune in other words, it's, it's not where I could say, oh, this could never happen here. It could. It did there. It was a true church. It could here. It did in Ephesus, and that was a true church. It could here. Verse 3, Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. In other words, a different version of who Jesus actually is. Mischaracterizes him. Describes him differently than how God's revealed word describes him. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel, a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now, Paul's not commending them for putting up with it. In fact, the Ephesians letter that we're studying in in Revelation 2, the Lord commended the church for not putting up with this kind of stuff. Verse 5, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least, Paul speaking of himself now in comparison to others, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Now, what does he mean by that? There were people, there were leaders in the church in Corinth that were claiming to be apostles like Paul, only even greater than Paul. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? This was one of the the false accusations that based in true events but it's a false accusation so one of the false accusations that the super apostles made about Paul the apostle they said he can't be that great of an apostle because he doesn't charge for his ministry if he was great if what he had to say was valuable if it mattered if, if what was coming out of his mouth was so important he would charge you for it and that proves that we're better than him because we are charging you for it Verse 8, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Now, Paul's being a little facetious there, but what he means is rather than taking money from the Corinthians, he leaned on, for instance, a gift from the Philippian church in order to go and preach to the Corinthians free of charge. Kind of like when you pay the price for me to, by your, by your um, sacrificial giving, for me to go and preach to the pastors in Kenya I don't we don't charge them at all we don't charge them anything we give them everything free of charge Uh, so he goes on to say and when I was with you and was in need I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia that's the Philippian church supplied my need so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me this boasting of mine shall not be silenced in the regions of Achaia and why because I do not love you God knows I do what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. And then this verse, verse 13, this is Paul's evaluation. This is Paul's opinion, but he, this is what I'm going to call a, a, a Holy Spirit-inspired opinion. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as 
apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, that Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. All right. I said I'd, I wanted to look at two things. Let's look now uh, in Acts chapter 20. And I won't have time to read the whole section, but this is a personal exchange between Paul and the Ephesian elders. Paul is on his way to Rome, not on a vacation. He's, in, he's under Roman guard at this point, but um, he's being taken to Rome for trial. And he has the opportunity when the ship that he's on stops in the port of Ephesus to have one last, he knows he'll never be back in the city of Ephesus. The Lord has revealed it to him. He has one last opportunity to interact with the eldership of, of the Ephesian church. So he sends for them to come and meet him at the ship. They come. He has this final meeting. And I just want to grab this portion of what he has to say to them. In verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. That's you elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then this, this really, really tragic line in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. You who? You who? Who is he talking to? No. He's talking to the elders in the church of Ephesus. I know after my departure, so the Lord has revealed this to him. He's revealed the future to him. And now, you know, by the time that we get to Revelation 2 verses, you know, 2 or 3, I forget which words, the ones we're reading. Um, By the time we get to the Ephesian letter in the book of Revelation, this has already begun to happen. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God. So uh, heading back over to to uh, Revelation. That's the backdrop. That's what's going on. And so there are these false apostles and there are um, what, I'm, what I can only describe as false elders. Those that, those that at one point in time appeared to be true elders and then developed over time into some unhealthy spiritual condition or, or adopted some really unhealthy spiritual perspective and teaching and attempted to then influence the church with the twisted things that they were saying. So the Lord says this, rereading our our key portion here, uh, right in the middle of verse two, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Okay, the two really important things that the church has done here that the Lord is very pleased with. And I'm calling this discernment and action in the church. He's very pleased with this. This is something that every true and healthy church must learn how to do this. Number one, they're willing to test those that are leading them. They're willing to test those who are leading them. Number two, they're willing to draw a conclusion and render judgment at the end of the testing phase. Now, what are they testing them on? I think it really boils down to this. They're they're testing them on biblical content of their message, what they're speaking to the church. Does it really line up with what is revealed in God's word? And then two is they're testing the character of these men. Just like the super apostles and Paul is in, in Corinth and Paul had to point this out. You know, it was a character flaw that the super apostles didn't see this in themselves, but the idea that Paul was humbly willing to, to minister to the Corinthians for free, leaning on the the gracious support of the of the Philippian church but 
but not charging the Corinthians. That was, that was a commendable character thing. But the super apostles who were in it for the money, that's obvious that there's a, a glaring flaw in their character. And of course, are there any other glaring flaws that can be seen in someone's character that is apparently uh, meant to be a, a leader of God's people or, or is proclaiming themselves, identifying themselves as a leader of God's people? Let me real quickly share two stories uh, from my own personal experience because I could go into literally hundreds of examples from church history to drive this point home, but I just want to give two stories of my own personal experience of of this kind of thing in action. Uh, One, I've shared this story a long time ago and it has to do with an experience I had in the very first church I was part of up in Topanga Canyon, small little country church, a true church, people that knew the Lord and loved the Lord. Very small though, much smaller even than our small church here. Um, One night, it was a Bible study night. There was a midweek Bible study on Wednesday night. And I came in and there were two men that were in the study already that I had never seen before, never met before. And I was always happy to see new people because it was such a small church. It was an exciting thing if even one new person came to the church. But uh, this night, there was two men that, that came. I'd never seen them. I walked in, and the first moment, I'm young in the Lord. I'm only like a year old in the Lord. And I, didn't, I wasn't nearly as discerning then as I am now, but by the grace of God, the Lord enabled me to discern that night. I looked at these men, and I instantly knew something was wrong, really, really spiritually off. And I kind of got sick to my stomach just looking at them. They weren't ugly. I'm just talking about, I just something about them just didn't sit right with me. And I literally turned around and walked out of the room just to compose myself and then pray and ask the Lord, Lord, what is it? What's going on? There's something going on here. I don't want to miss it. And I walked back into the room and I sat through the Bible study and they interacted in the Bible study and they had good comments and uh, quoted from scripture and it fit with the context of what was being studied. They were friendly. They, the people were enjoying their company. Everything seemed just the way it should be. And they stayed as part of the church over the course of the next six months. And I just still never lost this feeling. Something was wrong. I sat down and talked to the pastor and I sh- shared with the pastor there's something about these guys that I, it's just, I, I, don't, I, didn't, I don't know how to explain it. Something wrong with these guys. And he said, no, no, I, you know, they're fine. Everything's good. And six months later, what happened was they uh, left the church and took the wife of one of the men of the church and a young man who was kind of like a very in, easily influenced young man, a new believer in the church with them. And as they left, what came out in a big public meeting toward the end of their leaving was they finally identified who they were from their own perspective. Like in Paul's case in the Corinthians, those men called themselves super apostles. And Paul is kind of ironically using their own self-identification. These two men claim to be the two witnesses in the book of Revelation and said they were on their way to Jerusalem in order to fulfill Revelation chapter 11 in the last days in the great tribulation that was right just about to happen and uh, they went around to all of the members of the church and raised money for their trip to Jerusalem to get there on time to fulfill the book of Revelation as the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Now, were these guys the two witnesses in the book of Revelation? No, of course not. And, you know, did the did the uh, Great tribulation happened right after they left the church. No. But sadly, the wife that they took with them never came back. And the young man spent, the young man who was a new believer who I had led to the Lord by the grace of God, took him 10 years to to recover from that. And even after that 10 years, he never joined a church again because he was in his his own heart and mind. He was fearful of what might happen. that's one story. The second story is I was a, I was a friend of a vineyard pastor. I don't know if you, how many of you have heard of the vineyard churches. I was a friend of a vineyard pastor, and I was asked to, uh, just as a guest, to attend a, a big meeting. This is, gosh, 30 years ago, so sometime back. 
a big meeting of all that all of the pastors of all the vineyard churches were coming from all over the world and they were meeting down in orange county at the host the original vineyard church down there and um john wimber who was the considered kind of like the the leader of the vineyard churches at that time uh he's with the lord now but at that time he was holding this large gathering there was some five thousand people there are various uh church leadership groups from all of the vineyard churches all over the world he was introducing a, a special group of of ministers uh to the vineyard pastors and these men were known as the kansas city prophets now that should have been kind of like a red flags thing for the pastors of the vineyard at that time but sadly they weren't particularly discerning in their approach uh to new ministry in that way and uh but i was i was invited there so i sat through the ministry that took place over the next three days and um i was honestly i was shocked to my toes at the things that i was hearing the one of them one of the lead of these so-called kansas city prophets was a man by the name of paul kane you can google him interesting story um but he he stood up there and was describing to the vineyard church pastors that he had set, he was in his mind and and he was proclaiming this publicly the number one prophet on the face of the earth for the last days that's who he claimed to be and that he had such a close relationship with the lord that every single night the lord would appear to him in his room for a couple of hours and they would sit and they would talk together and the lord would lean on him for his counsel in terms of what was going to be happening with the churches in the last days and this i'm I'm just saying that's just that's just one thing that he said out of i i took i took voluminous notes and there might have been like a hundred off-base things that this guy said but um at the end of that i i talked to my friend i said uh, you know, brother, this this guy is a false prophet. This is not from the Lord. These guys, these Kansas City prophets, are not from the Lord. And all, all I can do is, you know, because I don't know John Wimber, and even if I went and tried to talk to him, he wouldn't listen to me. But I am telling you so that maybe you can say something to him. And I don't know where that ever went, but I do know this, that these Kansas City prophets became the influential spiritual direction for all of the vineyard churches worldwide for the next five years until it eventually came out that paul kane was involved in homosexuality drunkenness adultery you know and all kinds of things like that and it all crashed and burned and ruined the the spiritual atmosphere of the vineyard churches for uh several years afterwards there was a huge gigantic spiritual fallout as a result all of that could have been avoided had those churches those pastors simply done what the lord commends the ephesians for doing here and that is this how you cannot bear with those who are evil there are some people that circulate through churches that are just evil they claim to be good but they're not now the do I mean to tell you that you should be so hyper suspicious that you could never listen to anyone else but me? No, God forbid. That's not the conclusion. But don't automatically assume that just because someone claims to be something that they are something. Just because they say they have a certain relationship with the Lord doesn't mean they have that relationship with the Lord. How many hundreds, if not thousands of cases have there been? I'm talking about in modern times, let alone all of church history, where things came to the surface only after the fact and took entire churches down with them in flames. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested. So you're, you're testing biblical content and you're testing character. Tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false and that being a good thing now the last thing and and i'm way over my time so i got to say this really quickly in verse six he, he brings up the issue of the nicolaitans the nicolaitans i'll just say it this way they were they were syncretists what that simply means is they were combining christian elements with pagan elements 
and jamming the two things together and ending up with a, a spiritual mixture. And the Lord says about the Nicolaitan influence in the church. So they had two problems. They had false apostles, but they also had this, this pagan combination with Christianity issue to contend with. And the Lord says, I, I commend you for this also. You have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Lord hates taking the truth and mixing it with error so that you end up with what? When you, whenever you mix truth with error, what do you end up with? Error. It's always that way. It, you can take a, a, a pure glass of water and all it takes is just put a little bit of dirt in that pure glass of water and what do you end up with? Dirty water. I don't care how much water you add to it. Well, I mean, eventually, if you added a whole ocean of clean water, eventually the... The, the dirt would be so minuscule. But that's not what was happening here. Mixing elements, spiritual elements from the world around us, cultural influences, religious influences, and then jamming them together with Christianity to come up with an unholy mixture. We need to be clear that the Lord says, I hate that, and I commend you that you hate that as well. All right, let's end here just for the sake of our time. And uh, anything further we can pick up in our discussion over at the Spajari house in just a few moments. Let's pray, though, as we end. Father God, I want to thank you for having us in this portion of your word today and the things that you want to speak to our hearts about the, um, the pleasing element that you see in your true churches of being willing to discern and to be willing to test those that claim things about themselves but who fail the evaluation that you would apply to them. Help us, Lord, to be a rightly discerning as a church. Help us not to be carried away by any evil or false influences or any mixtures of truth and error that would corrupt the purity of the gospel in our midst and enable us to do it, Lord, in a humble way and a way that truly pleases you. We lean on you for this and ask you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, God bless everybody. And listen, I ran a...